how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. When you see things that young, they tend to be tattooed on the brain, said author Rick Prado. The first firefight I saw, I was seven years old. Black Ops is a memoir by the highest-ranking covert warrior to lift the veil of secrecy and offer a glimpse into the shadow wars America fought since Vietnam. In this interview, Prado talks about his life as a legendary CIA officer, the responsibility he felt to America as an immigrant, how he went about publishing CIA secrets in this book, and his views on taking calculated risk both in missions and in life. You know, it's, uh, I was there in the revolution, and when you're that young and you see things that are pretty exciting, uh, they, they tend to be tattooed in your brain. So I have a very, very, very clear picture of the first firefight I saw. I was seven years old. The guy was like two feet away from me when he opened up with a machine gun. But, you know, they, they, um, shortly after Castro took over, he confiscated my dad's business, and uh, the crackdowns began, the, uh, the arrests began. So my father decided to put his only son, his only child, on an airplane to a country he had never been. So uh, I remember clearly going to the airport with my mom and dad, and I had my little suit on and uh, got the last pep talk from my dad, the little man talk. And my mom was already crying buckets. And I told my dad, I said, if she keeps crying, I ain't leaving. So she kind of like held the back and, and, uh, and, the, and the way the entrance was, they, they call it La Pecera, which means the, um, the fish pond or, or the fish tank, because you, they had glass that you could see in. And I could see my dad biting his lip uh, not to cry as I, as I walked into that plane. So, yeah. Hmm. So what's kind of, we'll bounce around a little bit with your, your timeline here. So what exactly is a shadow warrior? So the book, the book is called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Kind of walk me through what that is. Well, Black, black Ops refers to several things. The first thing that it refers to is when we do covert operations, 
they have to be unnoticed. They have to stay in the dark. They have to stay in the black. Any operation that we do that becomes public is no longer a covert action. So that's part of the black ops. The, the other part of the black ops is that we do most of our work, if not all of it, at night. Uh, whether it's breaking into a terrorist ha a safe house, which is in the book, or, um, or meeting an agent uh, in a car at night, which we had several of those, thousands actually in my case, um, you're, we're doing everything in the shadows. We're, you know, we're doing it all in the black. So what's kind of the, give me at least the bullet points or the timeline between you're a boy, a little boy in America to becoming um, black ops. Well, you know, uh, the orphanage was not a picnic. Uh, it was Pueblo, Colorado, which was, uh, which is still a blue collar town because I was just there last year. And uh, you can imagine back in 62, we had um, a very mixed cultures. We had several different ethnic folks and, you know, and, and different characters. Um, so discipline was very harsh. And uh, so were the fighting. There was quite a bit of it, you know. But uh, it was only eight months. Uh, which is, for me was an eternity for, but for my parents, it has to be, it had been a torture, you know, for, for eight months, not knowing about me, not hearing about me, not being able to talk to me. So um, I, uh, well, when they came, I went back down to Miami and we started a very uh, humble uh, existence. You know, uh, there was six of us because my aunt and my two cousins uh, were staying with us in a one single bedroom efficiency in a real crappy part of town in Miami. That's all we could afford. And my dad working two jobs, my mom working in a sweatshop. Um, but my dad never took a welfare check. He refused to take a welfare check. He would take the food, the box food that they give him, but he would not take the, the welfare check. And uh, I think within a couple of years, um, two, maybe three years, um, we bought a little house in Hialeah you know, for a whopping $12,000 uh, back then. And that began the American dream. That, that, that became part, we started becoming part of the United States. My dad was adamant to become a resident as soon as we, we could, and we become citizens as soon as we could. And it was about this time that I developed a conscience about the debt of honor that I have for this country, not only for me, but for my family and my peers. So um, I think three or four months after that uh, eureka moment, I, I went into the uh, pararescue, which is a United States Air Force uh, elite unit, part of Special Operations Command. Um, so I did that, went through the training, which is, you know, like SEAL teams and Green Berets, our attrition rate is 80%. Um, went to, uh, I wanted to go to Vietnam. That was the reason I joined Pararescue. I wanted to go to Vietnam. Uh, I thought that there were, you know, here you have these paramedics that can climb mountains and jump out of airplanes and scuba dive, but they're out there rescuing people uh, and only killing people when you have to in order to rescue your, your peers. So that really resonated with me. I thought it was cool. The problem was by the time I got my beret, um, Vietnam was pretty much over. There was only a few token uh, advisors out there. So disillusioned, I uh, stayed in the reserves, uh, joined the uh, local fire department as a paramedic because I was already an EMT too because of my training. And um, I applied for the agency in 74. They sent a real nice note said uh, we're firing, not hiring, because those were atrocious years for the agency. 
But I tried again, I think it was in early 80. And um, this time they called me up. They said, look, you know, um, with your paramilitary background and your medical background, we could use you on contract to either go training or if we have a mission with our special activities division, ground branch folks, which are the agency's uh, special forces, for lack of a better word. So I agreed to that. I did a few, three or four trips with them, um, short trips, week here, week there. And when I come back, nothing happened for a while. And a few months later, uh, Ronald Reagan takes over. Um, he's aware of the situation with Nicaragua exporting communism to Salvador and Bolivia and Guatemala and everywhere else he could and, and the Cuban proxy for, for the Russians. So they call me up. They say, look, you know, if, uh, we, we need you. And um, if you're willing to come in, I, I just asked them, is it full-time or part-time? Because I wasn't interested in part-time anymore. They said full-time, and that was my back door into the agency. Was part of that beginning, was that a typical immigrant story? Like when you met other people in the military, is, did that responsibility kind of go across other people? You know, uh, one of the things that I am proud of is that I did not join neither the military nor the agency for financial gain. Mm -hmm. I was just following my heart. And I think that that's what every American should have, but definitely any hyphenated American who comes to this country. We all have a debt of honor. All of us have a debt of honor to the country. We all serve in different ways. Doesn't have to be GI Joes, but we all have to serve or at least appreciate what, what we have. But yeah, I mean, I, I've worked a lot with our special operations forces since I retired. And there's so many guys there that come from humble backgrounds, you know, Mexico, Salvador, Colombia, you know, Thailand, you know, Japan, Korea, all these kind of places that have become Americans and they're there doing a career. What do you kind of see as the big difference between how you felt in the seventies and maybe where we are today? It seems like you had this gratitude and service, this natural feeling where today is a lot less people joining the military. It's a lot less people willing to put in hard work in general. What do you kind of see as the difference there? It, it, I think it's a cultural thing uh, to a degree because all cultures are, I mean, not culture, but, uh, you know, different uh, uh, generations. That's right. what I was looking for. Different, uh, different generations. Um, I, I, I would attribute it first and foremost to the fact that we don't know how good we have it in this country. Mm -hmm. We have it so good that all our problems are first world problems. Mm -hmm. And people just don't realize that. And, uh, you know, when my kids grew up in uh, the, the time they did in the Philippines was the last uh, rough tour in the sense of living conditions. When my oldest came home, uh, he was probably 12 and we were at church and I gave him the envelope and uh, he says, what's this for? I said, Alex, it's for the poor people. He goes, there's no poor people here because we were in, you know, Fairfax, Virginia, you know, where there's more Mercedes Benz outside than cars, you know, and, and you know, so he knew, he, even at, at 12, he understood the difference between what he saw in Thailand, what he saw in the Philippines, what he saw in, in Latin America. So I think the number one problem that we have is that we have it too good. And this bent on socialism, because again, uh, there's a lot of the youth out there now, again, contemplating the utopic sale of, of, uh, of socialism. And every, every platform that I can race on this is socialism is just a mask that terrorism wear. I mean, that communism wears to eat you up. It feeds on freedom and that is the monster. Um, 
So I think that, they, that that's a deadly combination for our country. The fact that we have a, a very comfortable, uh, you know, uh, nation uh, population that doesn't uh, have anything to compare it with, and now you have this the luxury of time to read Lenin and Marx, where in other countries people are busting their asses to put food on the table. Right. If you so. Uh... To ask you maybe a, a parenting question, my wife and I are about to have our first in like a month. So we're right around the corner. Congratulations. Thank Congratulations. you. Um, how would you think about instilling discipline today? I mean, some of it may just be showing your kids those other worlds and those other aspects like that. What are some other things to kind of put that resilience in children today? You know, uh, I think kids watch more what you do than what you say or hear what you say. Uh, I've learned that from my kids for sure because you know I, I never thought they were listening and they're all serving in their own way. Um, I think uh, work ethic has to start early. Um, self-discipline, pick up your stuff and, and, and pri primarily consequences. Mm -hmm. We live in a world where people don't think they're consequences. Somebody can cut you off, flip you a bird and then if you get out of the car and grab them, you're the one that goes to jail. <laughs> So, hey, this is, I can flip anybody I want because there's nothing they can do. So, if you know, I taught my kids. I, I never laid a hand on my kids, never had to. And my, my oldest always says, he's a Green Beret major. He looks at, you know, he's always always dad, I know you never spanked me, but every time you looked at me, I know you could. <laughs> so, uh, it was uh, love, a lot of love. We got a great family. My wife was very, uh, you know, great compliment to, to the team. And, um, but th that, that, discipline early on and in consequences hey if you don't do your homework you cannot watch tv and if you don't pick up your clothes you can't go out and play and then subsequently duties and stuff like that that you can start rewarding but um that that was kind of like my map for my kids and you know both uh both my sons are military um the oldest uh has uh, two combat tours and two bronze stars the young one uh, is about to get his doctorates in uh, physical therapy and go back into the military uh, as, as an officer and my daughter runs two uh, charter schools so they're all serving in their own way and I think my daughter probably has the toughest job well, let's talk I appreciate that answer let's talk a little bit about the book um, a lot of times I like to ask authors like why now I would assume with a book like this there's a lot of things you couldn't say earlier on and, and secrets and whatnot but what kind of made this the right time for you to write this memoir I think it was a, a, a perfect storm in, in, the, uh, in, the, in a good way. Um, first of all, the reason I wrote the book, the reason that I wanted to write, write the book, and, and believe me, I was not forced to it, but encouraged by some of my senior uh, bosses, um, was because I have always complained about the reputation that my agency suffers in the media, especially Hollywood. Uh, I cannot watch most of these programs because, you know, even Jason Bourne, yeah, exciting, great fights, great shooting, but he is a maniacal assassin with 17 personalities who's doing something that wasn't legal with Congress, and now they're trying to kill him to cover it up. That's not the image American made, all these things that are out there that are their own truth. So I felt that my colleagues needed a voice and that I was a good platform. But the, the single most audience that I wanted to, to represent is the 137 stars that we have on our wall. Mm. We're a small agency. We are not Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marines. And we have 137 stars. And a third of those are post 9-11. Mm. And some of those I knew personally. 
So I hope the book does extremely well because I want people to see what my agency is really about. And most importantly, the kind of people, the patriots, the, the sacrifices, the discipline, the loyalty that we enjoy and the oversight, the legal oversight that we that we all enjoy. Do you think there were a handful of things that were true that led in that direction? Or was it just like this generally false thing to make interesting movies or something like that? Well, I, I'm not saying that we are. I mean, first of all, we're, we're made of humans. So right. we've had our, you know, we've had our traders. We've had our, our, our backstabbers. We have guys who have done try to bring drugs or weapons into the country. That happens in the Army, Navy, every, everybody. You know, mm -hmm. we all it's, it's made by men and it's flawed. But the concept of that, the concept that permeates Hollywood is that the agency is made up of people that are always double dealing, even amongst themselves. Right. And, uh, and, and that couldn't, nothing could be further from the truth. And, you know, I did 24 years. I never saw anything that I was ashamed of. And, you know, anybody, not even me, but just somebody else doing something that I said, whoa, man, I'm just, we're condoning that. No. We are a moral bunch of folks. Most of them are just good Americans. Mm. You know, just good Americans that have, have a duty and, and, and they're, and they're going to do it just like our, our, our military and our police. Is there kind of a general pattern in terms of when you might have went on an operation and when it becomes public? Is it more about long-term strategy? What are some of those things? Why would it come to the news versus, say, secretive and some of that? Well, if, uh, if I understand your question correctly, uh, you know, my book is fully cleared by the CIA. I had, you know, spent six months in there and there's things that I did not put in there because I didn't want them out and that, because they're still pertinent and they could cause damage. They took out some things that I thought they could have, but again, is there, is there, is there information even though it's in my head? Um, but I think that they were extremely generous in what they did allow me to talk about. Um, including my last programs, which they didn't let me talk about the successes, but they did let me talk about the fact of what I created and why and the kind of people that I had there. So, you know, there's certain things that need to be kept secret. Uh, we're not like the FBI. They could have Ruby Ridge today and tomorrow they kill Dillinger, you know, and, and they, they, you know, we could recruit Putin's secretary tomorrow. We can't tell anybody, right? But there's things that with time, and the example that I always use is that the movie 12 Strong, with the Green Berets that went into, into, into Afghanistan. Well, you know, that's very dear and close to me because I work a lot with these guys. I know some of them already. Um, but the first boots on the ground were my guys, CIA, CTC, ground branch guys, you know, um, that were first boots on the ground. Two of them worked, were, were, worked for me for two or three years after there. So... That movie, the agency refused, under Brennan, refused to cooperate with the producers. So they went to Green Berets, Green Berets, hell yeah, of course. They went to Task Force 160th guys, those elite pilots, night stalkers, and they said, you pay for the fuel, we'll give you the, the helicopters and the, uh, and the pilots. And they went to the agency, and we said, no, we're not interested. Even though their agency cleared books out there that describe the sacrifices that my, my colleagues made as being Paris boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. And when that, those helicopter, those carrying the Green Berets came into Afghanistan, it was my guys vectoring them in. Mm -hmm. In the movie, fantastic movie, super action, a lot of incredible stuff. 
the presence of the agency was relegated to a blonde guy <laughs> on a donkey with two suitcases of money and one of the SF guys saying, I don't know who that guy is, but he's got brass, bleep, you know. <laughs> and I, you know, I walked out of that, 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 that movie, Brock, I couldn't speak. Mm. I was so angry. And then I started looking into it and I found out from firsthand people, they told me, no, they, they came to us and we wanted to, but we were, we were shut down. Mm. So tell me about, I watched an interview you did, I think it was on Sunday morning and you're talking about uh, the life of a meat eater or a meat eater's room. Tell me a little bit about what that <laughs> means and maybe some things that are, that are in that room. Yeah. You know, in the old days, Vietnam days, they were what they called the, the guys who were out in the jungle doing dirty deeds, uh, snake eaters. Hmm. Uh, and with time, I guess we got a little bit more refined and better taste. And so we, as uh, meat eaters, meat eaters uh, is, is like, you, know, you look at the, the, the deer who's a doe and the tiger or the hmm. leopard that's hunting it, you know, uh, or the coyote that is hunting it. Um, they're meat eating animals. And, and uh, it's not a dietary thing the way that, that uh, David Martin took it up too, you know, he's, he even told me, he said, well, you know, meat's not good for you. I go, yeah, right. Uh, I eat veggies only to eat my meat. But, um, but that, that's what it means. It's primarily the, 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 the man or woman who is more aggressive, more willing to go in harm's way. And the only caveat that I, act, uh, that I add is that that's only good if it's for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a purpose. Everything has to be uh, moral. Um, I, I wouldn't do it otherwise, but it's hard to do the work that we do as meat eaters if we don't believe in what we're doing. And uh, all this uh, adventurism and energy and whatever wiring God uh, put, put in front of us, uh, for the, whatever path God put uh, in front of us to the barrel of our wiring um, is something that has to do with, with the right purpose in mind, not just, you know, adrenaline junkie for adrenaline's sake a lot of our listeners are more maybe creative types entrepreneurs how do you think about you've got service you've got morality you've got training how do you think about calculated risk and going forward with some things like do you see risk and calculated risk and fear as different things similar things how do you think about those oh, yeah i think that they those are all sanity checks on on, on anything i mean we we've been uh We've been in operations that we are uh, very excited about. And the last minute something comes up that you have to say, no, we cannot do this. Mm. We're going to get people killed or the wrong people are going to die, you know, right. collateral damage or something like that. So it, it is, look, anybody who tells you that they're not afraid in combat or if you're getting shot at, that's BS. Okay. Uh, our very elite guys like Delta guys and SEAL Team 6 guys, they do develop a coolness because they've done it so many times, but that doesn't mean your blood pressure and your, your pulse isn't through the roof in every single one. They may be walking real smooth going, boom, 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 but their heart, they're, they're in the zone because of that adrenaline, because you're putting your life at, at risk and taking your life. So I think that the three things you mentioned are safety valves that are always considered when we're doing an operation. What is the risk? You know, um, if, if there's a good chance somebody's going to get killed, we, we don't we can't do that. We have families. But we if there's risk that we can take with a decent chance of coming out, if we, you know, do it. And, and I will tell you, this is another thing that I try to do with a book, explain to people 
what real CIA ops are all about. And I tell that, our, let's, let's think of a, a particular mission. This mission that we, we've been tasked with doing with this, this, uh, this challenge. First of all, you have months, if not years of collection of intelligence and analysis of that intelligence. So it's something Russian, so it's something this, right? So there's, a, there's a, a, an inordinate amount of preparation in, in collecting information and then analyzing that operation, that information. The second is meticulous planning. You really have to sit down and sweat the details of any operation. What if, what if it's, it's I always ran my things like the, uh, the King Arthur's court kind of thing. Everybody around my table had a say and they would go, hey boss, this is, I don't, I don't like this because of this, you know? So, so we come up to that, that consensus and it's the buy-in. So, uh, and, and then of course the, the last part, which is also very important, it's uh, expert execution. And that is sending the right individuals with the right training to do what needs to be done. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.